Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. His immediate reaction was to leave work, hurry home, and I believe he tried to hang himself in his garage. Absolutely dreadful. It must have been an awful experience for the victim, though. But we were looking for the shoes, because he always took shoes. The more crimes were committed, the more violent he was, to be honest. Hello, my name is Simon Toyne, and I kill people for a living. I often spend days planning the perfect murder, figuring out what weapons I might use, and more importantly, how I'd get away with it. But don't worry, I'm not a dangerous psychopath. I'm actually a fairly harmless crime writer. And my homicidal thoughts only go as far as the pages of my books and the occasional podcast. I'm also the presenter of the CBS reality television series Written in Blood. And this is the companion podcast. Here you'll get additional content, behind the scenes insights and much more detail about the cases we feature and the authors I meet. Now, this is the third podcast in the series, uh, so I'm hoping that not only have you watched the first two shows and listened to those companion podcasts, but that you've also watched episode three before moseying over here. If not, I highly recommend you tune into that first, then listen to this podcast afterwards. That way, you'll not only avoid any nasty spoilers, you'll also discover the facts of the case in exactly the same way I did, which is a much better way to do it. In this episode, crime-writing legend and multi-million selling author Peter James takes me north to Rotherham in South Yorkshire to walk me through one of the most bizarre, fascinating and unusual crime stories I've ever heard. Now, many serious criminals become known by their nicknames, the crossbow cannibal, for example, or most famously, perhaps, the Ripper. And our featured criminal today falls squarely into that category. Ladies and gentlemen, I give to you the Rotherham Shoe Rapist. Now, before you go off in your heads wondering where this is all going, let's first learn a bit more about the author who brought this story to my attention. Take it away, Peter James. The key with writing is to demystify it to an extent. If you were going to be a car mechanic, you'd start by taking an engine apart and putting it back together. Let's say you want to be a crime writer. Read, read and read the big best-selling books of the kind that you really like, the kind that you would like to write, and literally deconstruct them. I started doing that you know, as I was a kid. I used to sort of de I deconstructed Glenn Green's Brighton Rock, which was a seminal book for me. Some of uh, Elmore Leonard's books, some of um, uh, uh, Joseph Wambaugh, and 
uh, Ed McBain, you know, you literally take the book apart in your own, you know, what made me engage with the character? What made me keep wanting to turn the pages? You know, writing is a craft. It's like, you know, if you want to make, be a carpenter, you make a wooden table. You know, the 10th table you make is probably going to be better than the first. You know, keep writing. Because I think the first sentence of a novel is utterly critical in, 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 in engaging the reader. And I'll, I'll, it may sound daft, but I'll spend sometimes up to two weeks on that first sentence and first chapter. But when I really know the book is working, it's when I get to around page 100, and I've got my strands going. I love writing different strands and slowly bringing them together. Uh, and when I suddenly think, actually, because I think every writer, you know, we, it doesn't matter how much we've written in the past, we start a new book and we always think, I know I do, I think, you know, I got away with it last time, this next book ain't gonna work. <laughs> and there's that great moment of joy when you suddenly think, actually, it is working. And actually, I'm at this at the moment with the, with the 14th Roy Grace novel right now. Peter writes fiction, and so do I, but that doesn't mean we make everything up. Facts are particularly important when it comes to crime fiction because a key element of the story is always about establishing facts in order to solve the mystery. So you need to get as many of them right as you can in terms of terminology and procedure because otherwise you tend to lose the reader. Now I don't know about you, but if I'm reading a book and there's a huge error in the way something unfolds or is described, something I know to be wrong, it can put me off the whole story. And as reading is primarily an act of escapism, where you transport yourself into another world, uh, that world needs to be believable and credible, because as soon as you break that illusion of reality, you're sunk. As a writer, I'm keenly aware of this. I always try as hard as I can to get the facts right. Facts are sort of like the foundation upon which uh, your fictional story is built, so it needs to be rock solid. For every book, there are always certain things I know I need to find out about before I write anything. In my fourth book, for example, Solomon Creed, um, it starts with a pale man walking out of the desert, wearing a beautifully cut suit, no shoes on his feet, and he's got no idea how he got there. So obviously I needed a desert town and a desert for him to walk out of. And having lived all my life in England, uh, I don't really know that much about deserts beyond what I'd read about or seen in TV and films. So I headed off to Arizona to walk in my character's shoes, or lack of shoes in his case, to try and find a town to set my story in. In this case, I actually failed because the needs of my story didn't quite fit any of the towns I visited. So I ended up building my own sort of Frankenstein's monster of a place from parts of all the real towns I visited, places like Tombstone and Tucson and the Superstition Mountains outside Phoenix. And I called this town Redemption. But even though my town is fictional, it still feels real because the specifics of it are accurate. Things like the blood-red colour of the earth around mining towns, the smell of the rain in the desert, and the intense dry feel of heat in the middle of the summer. So all of these kind of things um, feed into the story, um, and it's the facts that help you sell the fiction. So once I have my foundation, in this case the location, I start to write. And I also find that during the course of a first draft, I tend to discover more facts I need to know. Now, when I first started writing, I always used to stop when I reached one of these points and hop onto the internet to look up whatever it was I needed to find out about. Uh, now, this generally meant I would find myself probably about two hours later looking at funny cat videos on YouTube and not quite knowing how I'd got there. So I've stopped doing that. Uh, and now, whenever I hit a fact I don't know about, I just make it up and keep going so as not to interrupt the flow of the story and I switched caps for these bits so I know when I go back that I made it up. And then when I've got a whole bunch of them, I check, go through them and check them as a list. 
And funnily enough, I often find that the things I've made up are generally fairly close to the truth, um, so I don't have to change much. Uh, sometimes the truth is even better, and I change it and make the facts even more factual. Although, equally, the facts can sometimes be so boring that um, I just invoke my dramatic license and stick to the version I invented. Because though facts are important, you should never let the truth get in the way of a good story. Now, most of Peter's books are police procedurals, and he uses an expert advisor to make sure his books are as accurate as possible. And he's also developed a very close relationship with his local police force in Brighton. I do find their world fascinating because they see human life in, in a way that nobody else does. I mean, the, all emergency service workers see behind the curtain, but the police see every single aspect of it. You know, to give you a snapshot of a single day I spent out fairly recently with a duty inspector at Brighton and Hove, you know, at seven o'clock in the morning we're called to a cot death. It's a terrible thing. As a young couple with <clears throat> two-month-old baby has died during the night, the police have to give them pastoral care. But at the same time, be mindful. Maybe, just maybe, they murdered that baby. You know, they've got to walk this incredibly different tightrope. An hour and a half later, we were at, this, at a house in Brighton where a woman's phone 999 to say her living boyfriend's just put dog feces in her mouth. An hour and a half later, we're an elderly couple who are utterly distraught because they've just been swindled out of their life savings by an online fraudster. And, and the day just goes on. And you know, nobody ever calls the policeman because they're happy. But you know, they, they, they can, not only do they intervene, but you know, good police officers can make a real difference to people's lives and, and the way they treat them, the, the, the support they give them. Peter also invests a huge amount of details in his locations. His Roy Grace books are all set in and around Brighton, and many of the major landmarks in the city keep appearing in the pages, um, along with well-known Brighton faces. And I know this to be true, because I also happen to live in Brighton. And reading his books is very much like taking a walking tour of the city, seeing the sights and meeting the people who live there. In fact, so successful have Peter's books been that there is now an actual Peter James walking tour in Brighton where you can visit some of the real locations from these books. Even more reason then for Peter to get the details exactly right. And I'm a great stickler for, for research. The greatest flattery that, that, that I had, and, I, and I've had it a number of times, I had it very recently, a police officer up in Manchester wrote to me and said, oh, a colleague said I should start reading you because you're the guy who gets it right. And I think, I mean, I do have a huge amount of police among my fans because I do try really hard to get that detail right. And I think that research is incredibly important for a writer because anyone who reads, the mere fact they're reading means they're intelligent, smart. And I think I love when I'm reading, I want to read a good story, but I also want to learn something that I didn't know. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free 
or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Something about the human condition. I think it would be incredibly unhealthy if we didn't constantly look on at what's going on in the real world. You know, crime moves with the times. Um, and, and I think, you know, what we do as, as crime fiction writers, we actually examine, examine the world in which we live. We examine the reason why people do the things that they do. I did a lot of research, obviously, into, into kind of fetishes. You know, Brighton is a, is a wonderfully, you know, there's that old expression, only in Brighton. So I asked a lady's shoe shop if I could hang out and, and store for a, for a day, sort of behind the counters and observe them. They said, fine, and, and I sat there. And I didn't have to wait long, but then o'clock, this guy walks in, business suit, and he says, oh, do you have a pair of uh, leopard skin stiletto heeled shoes about size eight? And they did, and he put them on with his pinstripe suit and tie. He walked around a bit and said, mm, I like these. Bought them and walked out in them. <laughs> I thought, jackpot. Um, and after Dead Like You came out, year about six months on, I started getting emails, and I still get them today, from men around the world saying, Dear Mr. James, thank you for writing Dead Like You. You've cured my wife of her expensive shoe habit. So with all this Brighton-centric history to Peter's books, it came as something as of a surprise to me when he wanted to meet me in Rotherham. But then as we spent the day in the town, I soon learned the reason why. Peter's book, Dead Like You, is based on the case of the Rotherham shoe rapist, uh, which if you've watched the episode, and I sincerely hope you have by now, you'll know was a man called James Lloyd, who prowled the streets of Rotherham in the mid-80s, violently assaulting and raping women, then taking their shoes as trophies. We visited the scene of one of his crimes, a broad leafy street in one of the suburbs of Rotherham. It was late morning when we went there and cars were passing by regularly, the sun was shining, people were walking their dogs through the wooded pathways and past well-tended allotments, all very normal and safe. And yet you can't help but project a certain shadow onto a place when you know something bad has happened there. And as we stood there and imagined the sun not shining and less cars passing and maybe a lone woman walking home at night, all those leafy bushes that the dogs were bounding happily through suddenly start to take on a much more sinister dimension. And I think this is partly why we as a society are so fascinated by crime, because we know, deep down in our hearts and minds, that no matter how safe we feel, bad things can happen anywhere. In every case in this series, there have always been a few elements that have particularly stuck with me. In this case, one of those was the forensics. Now, James Lloyd was finally captured after a cold case review because for years nobody knew who he was. He was just another unknown rapist. And also, because his crimes abruptly ceased, there were no new witnesses and no new evidence coming forward. 
But the police never gave up, and in the early 2000s, they reopened the files. And they finally caught him by using a process that matches familial DNA. So they ran the samples they had from the old crimes and found a few hundred matches on the National DNA Database. And one of these turned out to be James Lloyd's sister. She'd been arrested for a minor offence, a traffic violation that required a DNA sample. And it was this sample that ultimately pointed the finger to her brother as the elusive rapist they'd been hunting for almost two decades. For me, this is the flip side of knowing that bad things can happen anywhere. It shows that persistence, both in the development of forensic techniques and also in traditional dogged police work, will almost always catch a criminal. And there is something very comforting about that. Within the Forensic Science Service, we'd um, been researching new technology that looked at um, similarities between family members in terms of DNA. And we began to realise that we could use this as a technique to provide intelligence to forces whereby they'd, had, uh, they'd got a DNA profile, but they'd had no match on the database. It was quite exciting and fresh, and it meant that uh, investigations could be um, progressed using DNA that wasn't necessarily about the offender's DNA, but about the offender's family member's DNA, and it could lead us to the offender um, using their family members. I remember getting a call from um, D.I. Hickman, extremely, extremely excited about the fact that they'd um, found the offender after all these years. Um, and obviously, although I only played a very small part in, in the whole thing, I was really, really excited, um, as were the rest of the team. Um, we were a really strong team. Um, because of the, I think because of the newness of the technique, it sort of did mean that it was a, uh, everyone celebrated when we got uh, a result like that. And the fact that after all those years, the victims of these crimes were finally going to get some answers was really, really important to me and to the, the rest of the team. That was Lisa Balfour, who cracked the case by running the familial DNA search. Now, another thing that stayed with me about this case was something Peter said about how James Lloyd apparently developed a keen interest in forensics. He would read uh, documents and watch programmes like Written in Blood and monitor the latest developments to learn exactly how police were using scientific advances to solve cases, both new and old. So he must have been thinking in all that time, it's almost 20 years since he stopped his reign of terror, that one day the police would catch up with him. That's two decades worth of fearing the unexpected knock on the door. Which is, it strikes me as a very literary scenario, one where I can't help but imagine myself into the mind of him as a character. I mean, it must have been horrendous, low-level stress the whole time, always on high alert. Never sure if today, you know, when you woke up, whether at some point would be the last day you would know freedom and the day when your past would finally catch up with you. I mean, to me, it's a form of incarceration. It's an emotional and mental one. It makes you wonder if he really did get away with it after all. And of course, in the end, he didn't. My time in Rotherham with Peter finished up at the old office where James used to work. 
Before he was unmasked, he was seen as a pillar of the community, someone who caused no suspicion with his day-to-day activities. Except for one employee who had noticed how much time he spent at work, particularly in a locked part of the building that nobody else was allowed in. And it was here that police would find a hidden stash of trophies from James Lloyd's crimes, as former detective Angela Wright now explains. We were all looking for shoes, really, because that's what we were looking for. So, because there was nothing from his home address other than these cassettes, we thought that he may well, because he was a workaholic, um, have something at his premises of work. We went, searched his work premises, very disappointed because there was nothing. Until a chap who worked there said, oh, he's always up upstairs, he's always in the loft upstairs, and he doesn't like anybody else going there. He doesn't want anybody to go up in there. Um, and obviously he was the manager, so they just did what they were told, really. And so I decided to send officers up up into this loft, and sure enough, that's when we found hundreds of pairs of shoes. And just remember them bringing these shoes down, or throwing these shoes down, and it was just marvellous. It was just, I knew then we'd got, the, we'd got our man. Lloyd was eventually convicted of four rapes and two sexual assaults, even though the number of shoes found clearly suggests there were many, many more victims. But unlike in books, where the criminals get locked up for life and pay for all of their crimes, in the real world of trials and chains of evidence and reasonable doubt and judicial process, criminal lawyers have to restrict their prosecutions to the ones they know will stand up in court. And James Lloyd never confessed to all of his crimes. It was left to the evidence and to the few brave witnesses prepared to relive the horrors they'd experienced 20 years earlier to eventually and finally put him behind bars. And in the end, he lost everything. His family, his reputation, and also his liberty. This podcast is the accompaniment to the TV series Written in Blood, which airs on Sunday nights on CBS Reality at 10pm. Feel free to tweet me any comments or questions at Simon Toyne, all lowercase, all one word, using the hashtag writteninblood. Or contact me on my Facebook author page. Uh, You just need to go onto Facebook and type in Simon Toyne author and there I will pop up. And it's always lovely to hear from you. Next week, I visit Darlington with crime writer Angela Clark to hear the dark and shocking story of a man who came to be known as the Facebook killer. Uh, The accompanying podcast will go live immediately after the programme airs, or you can hit subscribe now to make sure you don't miss it. That's it from me. Thanks for listening. I'm Simon Toyne, and this has been the Written in Blood podcast. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.